0: Welcome to Sportonomics presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm Jake Krantz. And today, Jake, we'll be talking about the Pac-12 being down bad. We'll talk to J. Ron Smith, who is the co-founder of a new sports tech app that's creating officially licensed AI versions of professional athletes. And at the end, we'll be playing a game of Wavelength. But first, Jake, Jim Nance might be out of a job because the Masters just announced, in a partnership with IBM, that they'll be rolling out AI announcing in their app next spring. Now, the golf tournament is already widely considered to have one of the best Apps in sports, which fans can use to watch the live broadcast, view up to the minute leaderboards, track each golfer across each hole, and watch every shot from every golfer on every hole for totally free. And now, Golf Digest is reporting that IBM is taking their large language model, Watson, to add AI commentary over every video feed in the Masters app, namely the every shot, every golfer feature that has become so popular with fans, which means that every single shot in next year's tournament will feature announcer quality broadcast. And I'll include an example here so everybody has a frame of reference. Substrucker, 28 years old from Austria, is going to hit from the pine straw on hole one. He took stroke two and the ball traveled 162 yards into the green side bumper. Now, clearly AI isn't taking Jim Mance's job anytime soon, but apparently it will be able to impressively curate each person's specific broadcast by... varying up sentence structure and factoids based on what they've already said in an attempt to keep viewers engaged. And the AI will also be used for fantasy and gambling applications right in the app as as it's able to accurately predict a golfer's score within two to three shots about 70% of the time by collecting 30 points of data from each shot, including fist pumps, waves and crowd response to take into account factors like momentum. So, Jake, I want to ask you, is AI coming for our job as podcasters next?
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Plain and simple. Yeah, well, I, we already use AI for the podcast. That's true. No, no, nobody knows that, but but all, all of the audio goes goes through AI and gets cleaned up uh, once once the podcast is done. So uh, a, a part of it is getting replaced by AI. I think the broader question is, is Jim Nance going to lose his job? Um, maybe, eventually. Uh, it, it is crazy to think about, and I think everybody thought that this AI and uh, all the automation stuff... Um, and, the the language models were going to only impact like the, um, industrial like, jobs. Yeah. Sure. And, oh, like, yeah, lo- sure. lo- lower level, like, like non, uh, like non-creative creative jobs. Yeah, yes, exactly. E- exactly. And, 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 this is like a shot right at the jugular, but for this specifically, um, jobs aside, what a great step up over the existing content that they already have. Like this, this is like the transition from a silent film to a film with audio like that. It is, it is, it is that significant. I think like it's, it's as significant as being able to have subtitles on Netflix for people that can't hear very well. Um, namely everybody over the age of 50. Um, sure. like my, my grandparents wouldn't be able to watch Netflix if it weren't for subtitles. And I think a lot of people prefer to watch stuff with subtitles for when they're on the go or when they aren't really able to hear something certain super well, if there's a lot of background noise. And so being able to have the audio layered over the play that's happening is extremely important. And I think it makes the most sense to have it happen in golf first. Like it is, it is in a lot of ways, an unstructured game, but the same thing happens pretty much on every every shot, um, for the most part. Like, you know, the ball is going to be hit in some direction. You know that it's going to go onto the fairway, onto the green, into a bunker, or into the water, into the rough, and then you know who's who's hitting it. And so, being able to take all of those data points and build them into um, something audible is, is is really substantial for them, and I think it adds a lot to the viewership experience because. If they didn't have AI, they would have to have somebody dedicated to covering every single shot from a broadcast perspective, which is just really difficult to do unless you have one person that's focused on each individual golfer. So you'd have, let's say there's 40 golfers, you have 40 individual commentators or broadcasters, which would be a crazy thing to do from a budgetary perspective. So sure. um, will, will this replace Jim Nance? Probably not. Um, he's, he's one of a kind and will always have a position, but will it... Replace the eighteen other people or thirty other people that don't already exist. Sure, I don't know. Like I, I don't know if that's really replacing. It just it just adds value to the end experience for somebody. Yeah, I think there's a couple
0: directions to go with this. I, I think I'll end with the broader conversation of what this means for broadcasters because Jake, I saw Sam brief a little up in arms on Twitter about this, who's a you know broadcaster for the Chicago Dogs, and I do think there is probably a bit of a, an affront against broadcasters or that they feel that this technology is presenting. I think from a media perspective, you described it a little bit. This is a great way for a brand like the Masters. Um, Wimbledon has also used this. A brand called the European Athletic Teams Championship uh, has also used this to perform some of the more tedious or lower profile or do some of the more tedious and lower profile announcing jobs. And I think it just helps raise the floor of the content that these brands can offer. So Whereas before, I think the Masters is a great example just because of how uh, great and, and how like holistic their app is in terms of the content that you can see. And for a while, you were just watching people hitting golf shots without much context. And that was a cool feature, but I don't think it was probably a really valuable part of the master's media library just because it was like a, this seemed sort of like throwaway clips, but now you can, even if you're raising the value of these clips by adding AI announcing by 25%, you have just created a slightly more valuable you know piece of your pro, uh, media portfolio in, in a sense and so i think early on that's what this technology is going to provide i, I don't think we're ever going to see in our lifetime if i had to guess the replacement of a jim nance or a joe buck level announcer because i think they just have become too pivotal too pivotal to the sports that we watch and the channels that we watch and like how we identify as sports fans like i think they're too central still to our viewing experience but for the parts of our viewing experience that are ancillary, you know, we're talking about the every shot on the Masters app or these lower yeah. profile Wimbledon matches. I I think they provide enough increase in value that brands will continue to lean into this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and for from like a broadcaster standpoint, I'm not a broadcaster. I, I totally understand what Sam's concerns might be. But at the end of the day, like nobody will ever stop technology. It will continue to innovate unless there is some like legal infrastructure put in place that prevents this from happening it will happen and even if that happens like even if there is a legal infrastructure put in place or laws that prevent it from happening over time people will realize the cost saving that that is is inside of the technology and that it will loosen up the laws and inevitably the technology will win again and so if i were a broadcaster i would be thinking about okay um one first of all it's not going to replace what i do but this could really be a great tool that I could utilize. And it's not there yet, but at some point, at some point, you're going to have a one-man crew that could really benefit from somebody that can do color or uh, a color person that could really benefit by having somebody that can do play by play. And for a a team that's not able to afford both or a team that wants to pull in the voice of Joe Buck from back in the day, like 40 years from now, they say, Hey, we want to have Joe Buck on this thing, but he's dead and gone or he's retired at that point, like you'll be able to do that, which I think is really fascinating Um, and will continue to provide value for the sports viewership experience. And and it it doesn't eliminate the the job of of somebody else. It just adds another layer to the entertainment experience that somebody gets as a fan.
0: Yeah, I, I don't even think the announcers are on the front line here of their jobs being lost. I think it's probably people that work in the production truck and people yeah. that are, you know, switching on a on a switchboard or, you know, zooming in and out in cameras, like the the backdrop of this technology as it was described in the Sculpt Digest article is that the inputs that this AI is able to receive and the decisions it's able to make from that are really impressive. And I don't think it, again, replaces what announcers do, but I do think it is able to cut to action based on all of these data points it, you know, it describes like fist pumps and crowd reactions. Yeah. It's able, it's even able to quantify in some regard like momentum of a golfer and so you can start like having the ai hone in or tell you where you should hone your attention and that starts to strip away the value of somebody like a director you know somebody that's again like operating the cameras in a a production truck somewhere and i I think those are the sort of jobs that will probably be lost early on Uh, but to your point jake like that all serves to from the context of a a play-by-play announcer it serves to help the announcer And, and and i've heard this said repeatedly regardless of which industry, the people like AI isn't going to take your job. People who know how to use AI are going to take your job. And so if you're able to wrap your arms around this and in, in whichever profession, you know, especially a, a play-by-play guy, I think you'll be able to excel yourself forward instead of feeling like your, your job or your livelihood is under attack.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I agree. I think I th- one, one other thing on this is that human error will always play an important role in sports like it's it's what makes sports so intriguing and i think it's what makes the sports content creation process really intriguing at least it's a part of it for me for sure uh, i think you and i both know personally that you'll, you'll go out and you'll accidentally catch a fluke one day based off of an accident that was made um in the content creation process like giving an ga- example in golf there was a, an incredible shot uh, from Tiger Woods, I forget the year on it, but uh, ended up being just the greatest golf ad for Nike of all time when he chipped it. I think it was it, was it during the Masters. You know what I'm talking about? I think I do know what you're talking about. And like the guy just made the decision to
0: put the camera back on Tiger for his you know iconic like fist Correct. pump celebration
1: after he chipped it in. Right. Yeah. So 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 he hit, he hit the shot and they. Uh, they had the camera on the ball the entire time and it's when the ball was going super slowly towards the hole and it paused in the hole and at that moment they were going to switch to a different angle but there was an error made by somebody in in the production truck that they didn't make the switch and it ended up being the greatest shot of like one of the greatest shots of all golf history because there was an error that was made and if AI would have been there to do all of that it probably would have made the switch and we would have never had that, that angle. And so sure. the hu- human error element is, is kind of interesting because it definitely plays out within the sport itself. Some of the, the biggest championships have been won on the backs of human error within the game. And so I think the same thing is true uh, in, in the creative world.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's also an interesting question here about broadcasters' rights to their, their voice and their likeness, as you describe, reincarnating somebody like joe buck 40 years from now you know you hope broadcasters get to the point where they can own or license out their you know their their likeness and, and their voice to maybe be used retroactively on on future broadcasts i think there's a lot of interesting things that get called in the question here i there's another a final point i want to make here it's on the backdrop of an article i read from the atlantic about this idea of moving towards AI broadcasting and away from these traditional play-by-play broadcasters. And they mentioned that it seems like already in our society, in sports, that we've moved towards a more bland play-by-play guy, whereas in the past you have Harry Carey and Howard Cosell who made their name off of being these big personalities that almost inserted themselves in the game the same way that you'd go to the game to to watch the action on the field or on the court you'd be watching the game to hear what the announcers had to say it seems like we're moving away from that and I'm curious Jake to get your thoughts like to me it, it in the atlantic article it seems like it's this idea of like a more brand safe less controversial way to watch sports they even talk about how the footage or the the viewing experience on TV was so much worse 20 years ago than it is today like now we can see within with you know with great slow-mo and like yeah. high resolution cameras what's happening. And so we don't need somebody to walk us through every single second of a game. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, you maybe needed somebody to take you along because the, the video quality wasn't there to where you could really understand what was happening. And so it talks about how this trend towards a more bland broadcaster might lead us into an age where we accept as a society these plain monotone AI like general 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 out general, general generalities there we go generalities generalities whereas uh, g maybe e-n-e-r-a e-n-e-r-a use a re- a s- sentence please yes yeah whereas maybe 40 years ago
1: we would expect a bigger personality to come from our broadcasters it was
0: just an interesting trend that i I thought was worth noting
1: yeah well it, I, I didn't read the article I just skimmed it just now while you're while you're going through that I think it's important to note the argument that they're trying to make. And it's also important to note that the sport that they're talking about, I don't know if the Wimbledon has ever been called by somebody that was eccentric by any means. I think the, the counter to that is like, look at a few of the biggest properties in all of sports, the most recognizable ones right now, the ones with the, the most amount of viewership and engagement, um, John Boy is one of them that comes to mind, and that's certainly out there. And it's not—it's not live coverage, albeit like it's not—it's not live coverage of the games. But people like that. Um, sure, they like—they like the commentary that's involved there, um, and, and the same is true with a lot of other commentators. Uh, there's probably a really strong arg- argument to be made that I'm sure they did within that article about the quality of the actual content that, that people are seeing or experiencing. And the other thing I think about is like, oftentimes the, the person that was commentating the game was doing it with the primary purpose of distributing it through radio. And so they needed to add color to it to help explain what was happening and, and, and share the emotion of what was right. happening within the stadium because people aren't able, able to see it. They're able to hear it and they need to figure out a way to get those individuals to feel it um, without them being able to experience anything visually, which is really difficult to do.
0: I, I, I agree. I, I think this all comes to a head and then we'll move on. As a lot of these sports media properties, you know, namely ESPN recently, are cutting broadcasters, cutting these on air personalities as a cost saving measure. And I do sympathize with the fear that a lot of broadcasters, and I think we're talking specifically here about like these mid to lower level broadcasters that are not ESPN or are on Fox Sport, they're not already in the collective consciousness of of our sports watching society that. They fear they might lose out on a job opportunity because AI can do it for cheaper and increasingly we'll be able to do it, you know, pulling in the same, if not better insights than they might otherwise be able to do. So I, I don't know if that's a valid concern in the next 40 years that we're going to have one-for-one replacements of some big name broadcasters, but yeah. I do see a world in which AI is is starting to supplement more and more some, some media properties that didn't already have, um, you know, attention or like announcer attention on them. Sure. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think it is, it is a concern in the next 40 years, probably not the next four years, but definitely the next 40. Like, I I don't, I don't see, I don't see why ESPN wouldn't say, okay, instead of us like building the next Joe Buck or even like a Pat McAfee and, and acquiring or acquiring him into the organization, like, why don't we take the same path that we've done at Disney and build characters out there, uh, like mm. an Avengers type person, and have them be a, a commentator, and and you're not going to have Thor call a game, but you very well could have Thor call a game, or you that's could just you 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 could come up with an, uh, like a like a a character that is a a sports commentator, a broadcaster, um, and that's just the role that they play, and they're entirely fictional, um, but pe- people experience it a- in a way that is novel to them, and they they like it because they are a fictional person and they can they can call the game however the media company decides they want them to call the game. Right. And these characters
0: could be evergreen. They never have to die or age or get right. less sharp on TV. They don't correct they won't be controversial. There's no risk of them going off the wall. I, I think that's yeah. actually really smart insight Jake. Okay. Well I said that's my thing. I'm I'll leave now. <laughs> okay. Well speaking of insights, I, I'm curious to hear what you have here around the Pac-12 because I think, as we both saw this week, they are truly in a oh. horrendous
1: spot. <laughs> actually, I, I don't think they are. I think they put themselves okay. in, in, into into like a worse spot than they were that like they actually were in. And I think I think like a good way to describe it would just be they're they're down bad. Uh, <laughs> did you see Did you see the tweet? I liked it. I did. I saw the tweet. Okay, okay. that oh, press oh. release of a yeah. I'll, pro- I'll provide context, and then okay. I'm gonna actually I'm gonna read the tweet because I think it's important for. Uh, understanding, like, (laughs) what is going on here. So um, University of Colorado, uh, Deion Sanders' new playground is leaving the Pac-12, and they did a vote with the Board of Regents of the University of Colorado, and they unanimously decided to move to the Big 12, uh, which is not the Big 10. It's a different conference altogether, and it's also not the Pac-12 for those of you that, aren't super familiar with the uh, the different conferences and, and college athletics. Uh, the interesting thing is that this this change doesn't take place until after this upcoming year. So they have to sit, Colorado has to sit within the same room as everybody else that's in the Pac-12 for another it's year. It's like planning a vacation until... and then you break up with your girlfriend and then you still have to go on the vacation together. That's, a, yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So that's, that's exactly what it is. And so I'm going to read what, the pac-12 conference released on twitter in a press release graphic uh the moment they found out that this was happening so the, the the caption is statement from the pac-12 conference and the graphic reads as follows pac-12 is comprised of world-leading universities and athletic programs who share a commitment to developing the next generation of leaders supporting student-athletes academic and athletic excellence and broad-based athletic success. We remain committed to our shared values and to continuing to invest in our student-athletes. Today's decision by the University of Colorado has done nothing to disrupt that commitment. We are focused on concluding our media rights deal and securing our continued success and growth. Immediately following the conclusion of our media rights deal, we will embrace expansion opportunities and bring new fans, markets, excitement, and value to the Pac-12. So, they released that. First of all, I don't think they need to release it, and to layer on some additional context uh, around why they may have released this is that they are trying to figure out their broadcast and distribution rights deal uh, for the next seemingly five to ten years, just like every other major conference is across the college landscape. And now there's a lot of uncertainty for them around which team is going to be playing in the Pac-12 in lieu of the University of Colorado. Uh, I really don't think that they needed to do this this press release. If you if you flip through the uh, replies and quotes, it like it is all just like Pac-12 is extremely down bad. It's it, there's so many clips from uh, Michael Scott doing bad speeches in the office. There's there's clips of. Uh, the kid in the back of the the school bus from the Simpsons saying, I'm in danger. Like, they are just... <laughs> it, is, it was a really goofy move by them to to release something like that. Um, and I, I just don't understand why they would want to, to go about it that way. So I just... I want to get your thoughts on this, first of all, and then we could talk a little bit more about the broader landscape of college athletics if you want to. I don't know if I completely agree with the fact that they shouldn't have done
0: that. I, it almost seems worse and i get what you mean from a being a hyper being hyper online like you know maybe putting out a tweet which is an alley-oop for you to get dunked on by everybody isn't a great idea but they also need to make some acknowledgement of the fact that one of their now higher profile member schools just jumped ship it almost seems like a, a, a weak position if they just let it happen without acknowledging it because you know what you understand about a lot of these conferences especially as this realignment happens is that they're built on trust between the members. And as that trust starts to erode, it erodes quickly and it erodes almost in an instant, it seems like. And you could go from having really strong conference affiliations to once you start to pick off these big brands, the UCLA, the USC, now Colorado, that the Pac-12 stands on exponentially weaker footing than it did two years ago because of this erosion in, in trust between its members. So I think trying to reaffirm However futile the attempt, the Pac-12 has to go out there and say, like, our mission does not change. You know what we stand for does not change because they have to try to reinstate some of that trust amongst
1: the the, the schools that remain in the Pac-12. Right. I don't disagree with that. I think it it, it just it, it was really funny to see it. <laughs> it, was, it, it is 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 what I was thinking about. The second thing I started to think about is how the role of like a college athletics conference has changed over the last 100 years. And so when they initially got started, I think the Pac-12 was in the early 1900s uh, when it was unified as a conference. Their primary responsibility was to create a schedule, to set up a conference tournament for each of the sports, and to supply the referees and officials for whatever event that was taking place. Now they still do all of those things. But they've become like this interesting aggregator of resources and deal making. And so uh, you'll see the meteorites deals that are being signed are not do- being signed on a college by college basis, rather, they're signed on a conference by conference basis. And so, Big Ten, as an example, like they are home to hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I think it's $800 million is what they generated last year for their member schools. Um, they, 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 they are that for um, all the, the colleges within their organization. Uh, and the interesting thing is like, as those numbers continue to increase and they're able to subsidize any travel costs that exist, I think that the concept of a, a college athletics conference being geographically based is kind of going out the window. Um, I agree like if you if you have a conference that can generate 800 million dollars in a single year for the 10 schools or 12 schools that are within it like forget about travel costs you you go out and you find the next biggest school that can add another hundred or 200 million dollars to that broadcast deal and you try to get them to, to come aboard and so I don't I don't think there's any reason why um, we should think that the big Ten won't have. A school in Florida, uh, just as a random example, in it at some point in the next 25 years. Uh, I do think that these things happen very, very slowly, and mm. there is still a lot of like brand affiliation between the individual schools and the actual conferences that they play within. Um, Colorado is probably an edge case, but like me, me personally, when I think of the Big Ten, I know I know just about every school that plays within it, and I think it would be really weird if like a uh, Minnesota or Wisconsin or an Iowa we're playing in the SEC. Um, that said, like, soften me up and give me some good media uh, and, and, and cheap access to games for the next 30 years, and maybe my my heart will change. Yeah, I mean, the obvious and immediate counterpoint to what you just
0: said is that UCLA and USC are now in the Big Ten, and that seems like such a square peg into a round hole, but it's going to happen, and as you describe, yeah. I think it's part of this softening process. I, I, I will push back against this idea that this is something that happened slowly because I think especially in the last three years, we've seen a real acceleration in the consolidation of these conferences. And I, mm-hmm. and I think in the next 10 years, we're, we're going to see probably the the pinnacle of consolidation, which I might assume to mean there's one large conference with all of the really good schools, or maybe at the very least two large conferences. I think the big 10 and the SEC sort of stand to be the two remaining conferences um, that are consolidated with all the teams. And I think your point jake about like the the purpose of these conferences is is a really good one because now they act as a middleman and i've been thinking about this idea of like middlemen and their need to exist for for a while now i think as we come into this age of like democratized media and the fact that you can get content anywhere without having to go through traditional channels um, a, a lot of considerations are now being made in other areas of life not media related that serve to say like okay why do we have to do things this way you know like the pac-12 is a great example they in 2012 moved headquarters into san francisco and between 2012 and 2021 paid something like 75 million dollars in this really bougie downtown san francisco office space Mm -hmm. and i think part of the unraveling of the pac-12 is like okay like we serve to fund this institution that's supposed to be acting on our behalf you know Mm -hmm. us being the school's And now all of a sudden we see schools willing to move and and break this traditional brand loyalty they had with their conferences beforehand. And they're getting paid even more money because of it. You see the Big Big Ten and the SEC signing these record media deals, which have Mm -hmm. distributions in the 60, 70, close to $100 million per year per school range. And there's like this legacy institution like the Pac-12 conference, which is getting fat and bloated and not serving its members. And I I think there's this sentiment of like, why do these middlemen have to exist? And so, I think there's going to be this like parsing out of really ineffective middlemen. And I think the SEC or the the Pac-12 is a great example of this, where okay, you're no longer serving our interest as a collective, you know, university group. We're gonna go jump ship and find somewhere else. And I do see the point where that thought process gets taken to such an extent that we might only, like I say, exist in a world where there's two major college football conferences and they have all of the bargaining power. And I I think an inevitable conclusion to that is there's just one college football conference in which all the teams are like comprised in this league. And and I've described this before. I I think privatization is inevitable for college football where it's just taken out of this amateurism facade entirely, where we (laughs) stop making up like college athletes shouldn't be getting paid millions of dollars. And like these aren't billion dollar businesses in their own right. And they need to be affiliated with some amateurism model because we have all this brand loyalty to our schools universities like there will still be fans for college football even if these players get paid and there's like this super league structure that exists outside of the traditional conferences and i just think that's the point we're going to end up at and it all stems from this idea of questioning the middleman and why there
1: even needs to exist this bloat in the first place yeah so two thoughts on that The, the the first thought is Okay, all all those factors in play. What what allows a collegiate athletic conference to differentiate from another collegiate athletic conference? Before, yeah. the only thing they were really dif- differentiating on was geography. Like <laughs> the teams, the teams just played together because they were closest to to each other. And so now they're starting to add on like all of these these services, these programs, these media rights deals. They're consolidating a lot of the deal flow at the 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 conference level. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on like how you see that changing. The other thing that I'm thinking about, and I, I wasn't aware of this until I started to dig into um, this this interesting model of, of college athletic conferences and how it's changed over the years. But the way that the uh, real creation enforcement changes within the NCAA is there are uh, there's there's a lot of checks and balances in place, and there's a lot of bureaucracy, and that's that's why I think this process is going to probably go a little bit slower than than you might think, Ty. But the the Division One level, there's the the Power Five conferences, and they all vote on any rule changes or enforcement protocols that they want to see throughout all of the other conferences. And so I'm I, I'm going to be really interested to see what happens if those Power Five schools consolidate into four or three conferences as opposed to the five of them that as as a as they currently sit um right now and what that does to a lot of the smaller conferences and so like as a ucla um or usc joins the big 10 like that that in a lot of ways it is fitting a, a square peg into a round hole and you have to shave off of a lot of the edges but Um, there's probably a few sports that get left behind that the big 10 just does not support, uh, and vice versa. Like, like there's a lot of smaller schools that have division one hockey programs, or, or maybe they have a division one baseball program and they just don't have anything else. Like university of Denver is a a good example there. Like they're really, really great at hockey. Um, but they're not super well known for a lot of other things. And so they play in a, a single sport conference called the NCHC outside of, uh, any power five conference and so uh, all, all that said I'm just curious to know like where you think that consolidation actually happens um and how quickly you think it'll happen because like I, I think in, a, in an ideal world we can just have it be done overnight and and we're there but I think this thing is going to take like another 80 years to sift through all the bureaucracy that's that's in place and the ncaa has it set up that way intentionally so they retain control over the situation yeah i I would take the under on 80 years i will say something
0: that's probably going to be pretty unpopular which is i honestly don't care what happens to the other amateur level sports at the college level i think college football is such a behemoth and football combined with basketball could probably both a exist on their own uh as private enterprises outside of the t- traditional collegiate structure and B they've been supporting every other college a- athletic endeavor for the past couple centuries since college athletics to this extent has even been derived and so yeah. it might be unpopular to say I don't care what happens to the non-sustaining or the non-revenue driving <laughs> sports but I honestly don't care what happens I-, I think it could be good to strip away some of these really bloated parts of universities and hold some people accountable that maybe haven't been held accountable in the past to either make these sports revenue driving or be equate the level of tuition that these universities are charging to some sort of value in extracurricular experience so what i mean by that is you know we see tuition rise far past the rate of inflation without a seemingly consummate rise in experience for students I, i think a lot of people would agree with that but at the same time, I think if we took away college football and college basketball from these universities, which is a revenue driving crush that they've been able to lean on, I think it would force them to reconsider how they prioritize spending back down towards these extracurricular sports and force them to see if, you know, do you see value in sports like baseball or wrestling or women's soccer, you know, sports that probably don't drive the university a ton of revenue, but they could invest in if they wanted to and right now that's not a difficult decision because their athletic departments on the back of basketball and football drive millions hundreds of millions of dollars every single year but and honestly if we get to the point where these universities say you know what we want to keep increasing revenue we want to keep putting spend towards officials and bureaucracy and raise the price without increasing the experience and we're going to let these sports go by the wayside good and let those universities be exposed for what is, in my opinion, being greedy and and not investing back into the college experience. And, you know, I, I, I just think that as we see consolidation happen, and I think part of that consolidation leads to the extraction of these revenue driving sports, we're going to see universities have to put their money where their mouth is with the other non-revenue driving sports. And that might mean cutting a lot of amateur level athletics. And I think I'm okay with that in, in the grand scheme of things, because of what that means for, um, you know, the, the, perseverance of college football college basketball and the ability for universities to actually back up what they claim their value proposition is
1: yeah how do you how do you feel like a the university will get disconnected from the revenue line item that a uh their football team brings in like even if the privatization takes place like you can't just pull it outside of the university and say all right we're private now like that's just that's just not how it's going to work like i feel like that the motto would be it's a private it's a private organization but the uh, the revenue driven from it goes right back into the university and you, you kind of have the same problem where you're just, like there, there's no change there from like a uh, operating perspective except for it's outside and they can run a little bit more freely so they can maximize the amount of money they can make. Like, oh, how do you, how do you feel those two things get disconnected that, so they can focus back on the college aspect of it?
0: I think that line item probably exists in, and I think we've talked about this, Jake, in the past where there's now some private company organization that set up which the university could still be a shareholder in for all intents and purposes but the increase in value that it sees from that alabama football llc is written down as you know capital gains because it's it's meant as an investment and it's not revenue that they're able to cash in on every single month or every single year and that means that their short short, their short-term cash flow situation would be such that they're going to have to be a little bit more specific with how i imagine they allot their resources and so for me that means like maybe you're making investments into extracurricular sports without the promise of return or without the cover that you know football is going to pick up the deficit on the balance sheet and you're still you know in the context of like private college football you're still seeing the increase in value in your investment portfolio if you're the school but you're not seeing like those those cash flows right away as you are with like ticket sales and merchandise sales and um you know donors and and, and different things like that so i just think it becomes separate um in terms of like it's not a revenue driving thing it's it's just a a piece of an investment asset and um in the short term universities are going to have to decide where to put cash understanding that
1: it might be towards things that are no longer revenue driving sure i still think it's the same same problem as stroked a different way yeah, we'll, 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 we'll let them decide. <laughs> we, we will let them decide. I, I mean, at the end of the day,
0: like this consolidation, I think you asked this question earlier, this consolidation is going to come down to which you, which conferences can provide the highest media rights distributions. You have to take into account the the competitive advantage here is that you get more money every single year from your TV deal, so that you can build this bigger program and, and that benefit starts to stack exponentially. And so but do, these do, teams are not going to want to be left behind for very long
1: i think like the the biggest question in terms of organization size is 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 there a risk if you're the ncaa is there a risk that one of these conferences becomes so powerful that they essentially overthrow the ncaa and become the ncaa totally i mean i think one part earlier you mentioned again back
0: to this point of like what's the incentive of of universities consolidating is as we see structures and we, and we see this with college football the college football playoff right now where they're allotting spots based on conferences and you describe the power five conferences have the right to make rules well what happens when the pac-12 no longer exists and so now all of a sudden you're a school that doesn't exist within the conference structure which means you don't have a seat at the table to set the rules or find yourself participating in these postseason college football activities well the schools that are able to remain with the seat at the table are going to be the ones that are going to drive membership into their conferences. And so I I don't think it's crazy to assume that one or two conferences become so powerful that they could stage some sort of coup. I I think as you're alluding to where they say, you know what? And and this, and this Jake is my entire point about colleges becoming private. Like to the point of these middlemen, there is really no benefit that the NCAA provides division one college football at the FBS level. And so why couldn't they, consolidate to the point where there's only three people in the room and they look around and they say why are we you know why are we paying the piper when we could just start our own thing and, and keep it all for ourselves and so and you, know I, what, do you, know you what... say 80 years I think it's a
1: lot sooner than that do, do you know what would happen after that takes place a big old lawsuit Well, that would happen all the way through and I'm sure it's happening now like I, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the, the there's litigation that's that's about to happen or has already started but I think that it, it all just is a never ending process of bundling and unbundling. And if there, was I think a, that, if there was a conference that came to power and decided to overthrow the NCAA, five, 10, 15 years after that, people would decide, hey, we don't like it this way anymore. Let's create another conference to rival this. Right. And then you would end up with the same structure that we've had for the last like 30 years. And then we'll come back into a unified structure at some point as well. And then we'll just continue to bundle and unbundle and, and ride the wave of that at the end of the day. I don't think it really matters because I think from a financial perspective, the money will still flow through the universities. Um, from a athletic perspective, you're still going to have some of the best athletes in the world that are participating at the the collegiate level, as long as you allow that pathway for, for money to flow through it. And, um, i don't really care what conference my teams play in as long as they're playing against their rivals so
0: i i I think that's a a decent point my my only counterpoint to the bundling and unbundling would be like where else have we really seen that in sports and maybe college athletics are going to be the unique example but we have seen the bundling of professional leagues the aba the nba the afl the nfl Mm -hmm. you know the al and the nl way back in baseball Mm -hmm. and there has never been an unbundling to the extent That, you know, there's like a successful rival league to any of these major four leagues. And so, again, maybe college athletics is the special case in in this situation. But I feel like if that were to happen, they're to bundle to the point where there's like one unified, consolidated power structure, it would entrench itself
1: so deeply that it would prevent any unbundling from from happening in the You future. would think so. I mean, the NCAA is that right now, but they're they, they got unbundled right. by conferences and they're starting to get reconsolidated. And so, I just don't think there's a long enough time horizon that we've seen. I'm sure, I'm sure if we looked at European soccer or a sport that's just been around for a lot longer, then we would maybe we would maybe see a lot more bundling and unbundling within the the league and organizational structure. But I mean, you can you you can look at outside of sports and look in the business world and. Um, Amazon is, is certainly, uh, still a behemoth and they, they did a wonderful job of bundling literally everything in the world. Uh, so if you want to buy anything, you can do it through Amazon, but there are tons of multi-million, uh, sometimes like hundreds of millions of dollars businesses, like annual, annual sales that are, um, essentially unbundling the things that Amazon is not good at or not focusing on. So at some point you reach such a large scale that you can only focus on so many things and do so many things really, really well that somebody will come in and say, Hey, we're going to do this one thing a whole lot better. And maybe we get, we get to the point where hockey decides, Hey, we don't like being underneath the umbrella of let's, let's assume the big 10 is the the 600 pound gorilla in the room. And they, they went out and they get Every single sport, every single conference consolidates into the Big Ten. Um, hockey decides one day, we want to be separate. They can do that. And we can, they can just do hockey better than anything else that the Big Ten has to offer. And they'd, they'd probably be okay out on their own. And so that that's my thought on that. My final thought on the whole conferences thing, and then we can move on into our interview, is that conferences need to rename themselves so they don't have numbers in their name. And... Mm. They need to make it a lot less confusing for me because I have no idea. Like, I just, I, I, can't comprehend that there's more than than ten teams at any given point within the Big Ten or the Pac-12. No longer has twelve teams when it used to have fourteen. Like, why would you put a number in your name? First of all, second of all, have have a little bit of originality. Like, so, Southeast Conference that that makes sense. They're in the Southeast. That's great. That's almost. That's also limiting because they're not able to pick off schools outside of the Southeast. But like, I don't know. Pick something a little bit, a little original, maybe. Don't don't put a number in there; it's confusing to me. Your point is well taken, and maybe we'll see some creative names happening.
0: You, we, we heard of things like the alliance that was supposed to be happening between the SEC and the Big Ten. So maybe we'll get creative with some of these. Uh, if you remember, the Big Ten the divisions used to be called the the Legends and the I, Legends in the league or something. I don't know. Damn. They're not go- they're not going to come up with names. So your your point is well taken. You let me know. I, I'm here.
1: Uh, give me. Four, okay. I got. I'll give you. Give you ten ideas. You'll, you'll get it. Th- you'll get it to the right people. You'll, you'll yeah. get it to the right people. Yeah, I, I of will, course. Uh, I will. I'm happy to to jot down some names. Um, and I'm, I'm just. I'd be more than more than happy to do that. But like Big Ten and Big Twelve. Like, why would you? If you knew the Big Ten was a thing, or you knew the Big Twelve <laughs> was a thing, why would you name your conference the the opposite? Like, why would you? I just don't know. I don't. I don't understand. All it. right. We're, we're, we're rambling now at this point, but, yeah. but I, I was just thinking about that. So anyways.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring on our guest now, Jaron Smith. So Jake, it's actually kind of perfect that at the beginning of the episode that we talked about AI because Jaron just co-founded an app called Air that's leaning heavily into the use of AI for athletes. Now, full disclosure, I am partnering with Air on some content, but I'm also genuinely interested in the applications of this kind of tech as it pertains to athletes fans and brands now drawn himself is a wildly interesting person with a background in sports tech and politics early in his career he served as the white house deputy director of digital initiatives for barack obama in his second term and he went on to be the cmo of sc30 inc which is steph curry's media investment in philanthropy enterprise and now as a co-founder of air drawn is exploring how athletes can harness emerging technologies to help them grow the value of their own brands Dron has some great thoughts Around athletes as enterprises and businesses. And I'm excited for you all to listen to our conversation about where sports and tech is headed. Enjoy. So Jaron, I read the article that uh, you had in in Sports Business Journal, and and you talk about how this endorsement model for athletes is antiquated. And this is something that I've thought a lot about, especially as it pertains to the Golden State Warriors and how that's kind of seeped in seemingly through the rest of the league. Can you talk a little bit about the endorsement model traditionally as it's set up for athletes. What about that doesn't work today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the endorsement model is set up. Uh, currently, one, it starts with like the infrastructure of an athlete. You start with an agent. You hire an agent. Agent typically gets about 4% of your on-court and somewhere between 10 and 20% of your off-court. Um, at one point, uh, contracts were not as structured as they are today. So that agent and their relationships and their expertise was needed to go in and negotiate, you know, the specifics and the quantity of the of that deal. And then, you know, to go out and get you some endorsement deals. Um, in that former day, there wasn't as much on court compensation as there as there is today. So that endorsement money was used to subsidize income. And sometimes players would make more off the court than they would make on the court. So it made it very necessary. In today's time, um, these contracts are are bigger than many mid sized companies. And and therefore, um if if uh, if the revenue is bigger than a mid sized company, you have to look at that athlete of the enterprise, structure it, um, look at it and conduct it as such.
0: Okay, so so you're essentially saying so I can have a, a comprehensive understanding that the athletes are getting paid so much on the court that it, I I almost see it and correct me if I'm wrong here like they're open now to take maybe greater risks on their off the court dealings like they don't have to play it as safe with the you know check up front on a you know subway commercial they can maybe delay the returns of some sort of investment as you describe in their enterprise yeah. because they're making so much money am I understanding that correctly
2: Yeah I think that's accurate I would say one because they're making so much money it's not going to be easy to get an athlete to do four eight hour shoots over the course of a year for a million dollars, right? It's not that's not as interesting. I think secondarily, okay, you have you have typically that four percent goes to this agency who has this these resources that are spread out against a collection of athletes. That's kind of what that four percent for is for in addition to negotiating the contract, et cetera, et cetera. However, at this point, because one that's not as necessary because the contracts are structured, you could be using whether you want to keep giving that edge to the four percent or cut it down to two and then take another, take the other two percent, you could be using those millions of, of dollars of excess to set up your enterprise, your CEO, your CMO, your COO, your chief investment officer, etc., to then um grow the pie. Growing growing the pie off the court from an endorsement lens is no longer going to be adequate if you look at the disparity in contract versus off the court. You have to literally grow, grow the enterprise.
0: Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. Like it, it seems like when you think about it like that, intuitively, a Subway marketing budget has not grown consummate to what NBA contracts have grown in the last twenty years. You know what exactly. I mean? Like they, they, they've outpaced it. So I, I think that's interesting. Was so you worked with Steph Curry um, right. on, on, his, on his enterprise um, SC30. In you working with Steph was there a deal, you know, maybe an investment opportunity that opened up his eyes to that discrepancy between an investment and a traditional endorsement?
2: Yeah, I would say standing up unanimous from an endorsement. I mean, from an enterprise standpoint, was like super critical and help like helping all of us see like the holistic nature of what it means to to stand up an enterprise. Right? SC30 was his whole co, and across that whole co was partnerships endorsements. Uh, philanthropy and media. Um, that media bucket was where unanimous stood. Uh, and then when you start to when you look at the the business of Hollywood and starting to produce shows that then are syndicated in other countries and create residuals, et cetera. Um, the whole goal and the name of the game is to make money when you're sleeping, right? So when you when you when you're an athlete and you're playing basketball, you're getting paid for you know, getting out there, you know, playing in the games, going to practice, doing your whole thing for, for, you have to be doing what you do. But like when, you're, when your enterprise starts to move and you can make money in your sleep, hence a show or a tech platform or whatever the case might be, things start to, things start to, to move in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I, I almost equate it to if an executive at Apple, let's say Tim Cook takes a year off, the value of Apple is still going to increase the time that he's away. If Steph Curry takes a year off of playing, the value of his brand is probably going to diminish a little bit and maybe not for Steph Curry, because he's now become this transcendental right. player and figure in sports, but for 95% of athletes, that's probably true. Do you, do you like see that there is a certain level, maybe confirm or, or deny this, that if an athlete like takes some time off, like the endorsement deals stop coming in, you know, these like ability to this ability to monetize your brand in the traditional sense stops coming in. Am I thinking about that correctly?
2: Yeah, I think that I think that's accurate, right? Uh, playing the game, being on court, performing at a really high level, the NBA media machine is super sophisticated. Uh, they uh you know, you know, on Twitter they call it the script, right? It's like a yeah, it's, like, it's like a reality show. So that uh that media machine uh drives eyeballs and grows the brands of of athletes. So yeah, naturally, you take a step away from that machine, and you can kind of see what transpires with many retired players. Sure. I, I want to take a little off-ramp onto that idea of the NBA
0: media machine. I I have long held the, the thought that it seems like the NBA above any other league is the most narrative-driven league, but to the extent that it seems like players are making on-court decisions based on reactions to what is said in the media. So the example I always use is like, it seems like Kevin Durant Felt the pressure to need to win a championship for his legacy, so he goes to Golden State, and then he heard this noise of the fact that he's a ring chaser, and then makes a decision to go to Brooklyn. After that, so it it seems like he's almost playing reactionary versus being like proactive for his own legacy, and maybe those things can exist in concert. But like I'm curious, this idea of like athletes becoming enterprises and like growing these brands outside of you know what they're doing on the court do you do you think there is some pressure from
2: the media that pushes them to do something like that? I would say I don't I, I, I don't have a definitive answer based on what okay. you just said. said. Um, if you did a video, if you ever did a video or already done a video on what you just described, I would love to watch it. I, th- I think that's like a, such a really um, interesting theory. What I will say is like I know athletes see the narratives. I know they read the narratives, they read the news, their teams are sending them everything they're seeing. Um, so they're getting the information as any regular NBA fan would, Uh, the interesting thing I think about being um, a professional athlete is that you have an affinity for the game as well. So, and at one point you were strictly a fan of the game and then you grew into this superstar that now has become a part of the game. And as such, you know, that affinity for the game And the things that transpire around the game and that fandom, I don't think completely leaves you. So you're still, Mm -hmm. you're still digesting, but now you're a character in that, in that, in that same kind of situation as well, which is pretty interesting. I'm actually, like, sitting here talking about (laughs) what you just said. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. That's a pretty interesting theory. I got to really think through that, like across the board.
0: It, It is like, as you described too, it's like the ultimate soap opera in which. The people almost know that they're in the soap opera and that they have the ability to like change the storylines, and so there yeah. there almost seems to be a lot of this like metaness happening in which Kevin Durant is commenting on things that are, you know, happening to him, and he's it's just like, and it's obviously not just Kevin Durant, but there's a lot of interplay between the media and the NBA more so than than any other league, and I think it's like it really seems to me to have an effect over the on the core product more than any other professional league.
2: It's, it's so interesting. One of my favorite shows, um, from a, from a story driven narrative story art perspective is The Wire. I think they did such a great job with that show. And, you know, media meets politics meets like street drug dealers. And, uh, you know, that whole, that whole kind of ecosystem of interconnectedness and the way you just described the interplay between the media and athletes and decision-making, I'm like, Hmm, there's, there's definitely a show in there. Um, there's just the premise of a of a scripted television show in there. I'm just like know, digesting. That's interesting. I think so. So I
0: I see a a third element of this interplay that we describe between media and players come into the fold as we talk about these enterprises with athletes. And I think that was first identified for me through this Silicon Valley connection between the Golden State Warriors, specifically Andre Iguodala, and then later on Steph Curry, and, and like their their off the court dealings. And so. I want to hear from you. Like, how do you think Steph's proximity to Silicon Valley played a role in him building out his enterprises? Do you think it set him ahead of anybody? Do you think that proximity to a place like Silicon Valley is even important for players these days to grow their off-court brands and
2: enterprises? I don't think it's critical. Um, tech VC, the tech VC world is pretty is pretty globalized. Uh, these players, as I mentioned, are enterprises, and the information is going to get to them. Now the velocity by which it gets to them and the velocity by which they have access and that information is delivered is probably um a bit more uh, is a bit faster um uh, because you know uh I would be interested in seeing the stat on this, but I, there's gotta be the most billionaires at Golden to say Warriors games versus any other arena in the sure. in the country so. Um, it's all there and there for the taking, access to the deals, knowing which deals are most viable and then the ability to get into those deals. So I would say there's definitely an advantage, but you also have to want to take care, take advantage of that advantage, which obviously Andre Godala has done an excellent job with, and as well as uh, a plethora of other, other individuals. But um, Andre also did the work. He did the research. He sat in the rooms uh, and kind of learned the venture capital game. Okay. This is a total aside, but I I
0: always think about this dynamic. This was probably back in the '90s where it felt like, or I I heard that it felt like basketball players want to be rappers and rappers want to be basketball players. Do you think that's evolving now to where athletes want to be VCs and VCs want to have the notoriety of of athletes? Because it seems like, as you describe, these billionaires are sitting courtside at the Golden State Warriors games. Like that now holds a certain level of prestige that maybe it didn't ten years ago. Do you, do you see athletes sort of aspiring to be? like this VC level or considered to be in that
2: crowd? Yeah, I would say at one point, I want to say it's as prevalent at the current moment. Uh, I think people across different verticals definitely want to be athletes. I think that's that, that remains true uh, across different eras. However, I would say the league seems to be pretty trendy to me. So... Mm-hmm. At times, it's want to be VCs and dominate the investment game. At times, just want to be executive producers and dominate the film and television game. At times, want to dominate the endorsement game. Um, you, it, 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 it kind of varies based on what some of the bigger athletes in the space are being successful at. And those narratives that are being driven, almost back to your point that you just alluded to, it's like... Yeah. Hey, this seems. This is the conversation, and let me try to be a part of that conversation, or even be dominant in that conversation.
0: Sure. So. so, I mean, we we talk about this, you know, building of enterprises like it is a new thing, and I think to the extent that like media and philanthropy and sitting at like a cap table are involved, this is pretty new. But as far back as Michael Jordan with Nike, like we saw athletes getting equity deals, um, like you know all along in the NBA while that was has always been true for the top 5 1% of, of athletes what do you think this new era of equity deals of, of building enterprises means for the rest of the 95% of athletes you mentioned at the very beginning that there's more money in the NBA now than ever before you know i'm sure the ninth guy off the bench on the Milwaukee Bucks is probably making more than 80% of the league did in the you know in the 1990s so what do you think this new ecosystem means for all of the, you know, quote-unquote regular athletes that aren't the Steph LeBron's KD's of the world?
2: Yeah, I mean, one there is more money in the league, naturally. There's more media attention on the league. The media deals are going to get bigger and bigger. Uh, you no longer have to play in one of the key cities to get the attention necessary to, like, grow your brand, etc. But you know, my mom used to say nothing changes under the sun. I don't know if it's evolved to the point where I, I think it's still some of the lesser known athletes just have to work harder to kind of build that off the court business, build their brand off the court and and grow their enterprise value versus some of the most reputable players on court. It's, it, it's going to tend to come a little easier. Sure. Do you see this having any, any downstream
0: effects for youth sports? You know, college athletics. As we see the the rise of NIL deals, like what what applications will this have for younger players, and maybe especially in the context of social media? Because it, it seems like now, and I'm just going to give you another one of my wild theories, yeah. which is you can you can be a famous basketball player without being very good at basketball. You know, you could be. A top 100 prospect and be really good at making tiktok content and be widely considered in the public zeitgeist as being like a, a top basketball player but you know in reality you're you're not one of the best i think the cavender twins are a great example they play at miami they're they have a really good understanding of social media but they don't score more than you know 12 points a game each you know what i mean yeah. so it's like there's this discrepancy between talent and popularity maybe loop that into this whole idea of how these enterprises can start at a younger age for athletes
2: You know, some will say the most successful businesses kind of have this hat trick of sorts of product brand or product marketing and sales, right? So if your product's not great, um, not excellent, which would be like what you're doing on the court, um, then is your marketing great? And then are you able to convert that marketing into brand deals, et cetera? which would explain the twins in miami uh with that being said in il deals i wouldn't say there has been anything more transformative um in the last few eras in uh amateur sports than in il deals it's um it's completely changed the game uh to be 17 18 19 20 and have the potential of bringing in that type of money. Uh, I think it, there's some there's some positive aspects and pieces to that, and what that athlete can do for themselves for the for the for their family, get a head start on building that enterprise potential, etc. But but also part of what allows an athlete to become great is that hunger, is the desire to get to the to the next level, to create. Uh, long-term earning and value for themselves, which for most people in society, um, is an escalating process. It's, it's a little more by more, a little more, by more, by more, more, uh, and to kinda get rewarded, uh, at that level before getting to the professional level it remains to be seen what that means for, for athletics and youth athletics specifically.
0: Sure. It's round out this conversation. Do you find, as you you know identify these athlete social circles, and maybe this comes back to our conversation about how media plays into all this, do you find that it's now required that athletes have these sort of enterprises built up? Like, is, is this now a form of status for athletes where before maybe it was having a signature shoe and now it's having, you know, one of these companies like like Steph has?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think athletes in general are competitive and having an enterprise, having deals, having the best partners in the world, sitting at the table with some of the smartest entrepreneurial minds um, in history uh, are all status symbols. It's, you can only compete to a certain extent on court, but then there's that competition that's transpired off the court and so, so from a status symbol standpoint, absolutely gotcha. From a status symbol standpoint, uh, I think that that is absolutely true. Okay, Jake, we're back,
0: and I want to play a little game today. It's called Wavelength, and it's pretty popular online. And the rules are pretty simple. So I'm going to start by writing down a number. And then you get to ask me for three clues in any sports category to help you try and guess that number and for the listeners we're going to talk about the number at the end so you can play along too so just assume now that you don't know the number you're like jake and and you're trying to suss it out the same way so in this general game of wavelength zero will be considered quote bad 10 will be considered quote good so the you know closer you get to 10 the the better or the more good the thing is which is kind of what makes it fun because those are sort of arbitrary value assignments so are you ready to start, Jake? I'm ready. Should I close my eyes? I'm... Yeah, you should close your eyes, and I will write down a number here. Okay, this is Wavelength Sports Edition. Your number is set. What is your first question, Jake? Can okay, I open my eyes? We're good? You can open your eyes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> college athletic conferences. College athletic conferences. I'm going to give you
1: the big 10. Oh, wait. what was high and what was low? It was 10 high. Like 10 high 0 low yeah. okay okay um all-time golfers all-time golfers let's
0: go with
1: jack nicholas okay do i have to go for the third one or can i just guess and i think okay. it would be helpful if after each one
0: you gave an idea sorry you might have froze there for a second i think it might be helpful if you gave a sense of like where you're at so Okay. Now that you have guessed Jack Nicholas, are you honing in on any sort of
1: number? Oh, well, so after the first one, I, I thought for sure it's it's 8 or 9 um, because it's not 10. For whatever reason, I feel like you, you're going to have the SEC higher than the Big 10. And I didn't have Tiger Woods as number one. You would definitely have Tiger Woods as, as number one, or in this case, number 10. So that puts me at an 8 or a 9. I think the last question I would ask would be... Oh... How do I differentiate between 8, 9, and 10? I'm just mm-hmm. so like, that I, is dead. That, uh, <laughs> that is the game. Uh, um, okay, uh, social media platforms. This would be good. Mm, that
0: is a good one. Oh, man, I have to think really hard. Okay, this is kind of a tough one, actually. I'm going to say uh, Instagram. Okay, 9... It was a nine, that is correct. Right. I wrote down nine, if you can see that. <laughs> what what is it was you doing so small? <laughs> yeah, I was just writing it as a proof of concept for myself, but I promise it's a nine. If you're listening, it is a nine. So Jake, great job. That's kind of fun. Can I yeah. do the same back? Okay, you're gonna write down a number? Sure, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write it down way bigger than that though. Okay, uh, <laughs> and as Jake know, writes down the number, I'm going to think of some, some categories that I could potentially go for. It, if you're uh Jake, I don't think there's any need to, to for me to close my eyes. Why don't you just write down the number and then you can hold it up at the end as as proof? This will be like a bit of a
1: magic trick. Okay. Um I'll rip it out. Okay. You ready to go? Put it in a safe spot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go
0: with um sports league you would most like to own.
1: Mm. Uh like a team in a sports league that you'd most like to own. A team in a sports league that I'd most like to own.
0: Uh, probably just thinking. Baseball, MLB. Baseball. Okay. Yeah. So, well, your large market team, though large market team. A large market MLB team. Some this seems like it's kind of like I'm honing out like seven here. Maybe a, I think j- based on our our draft, you are not a big fan of of baseball. So I'm gonna go like five, six, or seven. I'm I'm next going to think uh, modern NFL quarterbacks like current starting NFL quarterbacks.
2: Oh
0: okay. Um and frankly you and I don't talk much about the rankings that we have for NFL quarterbacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. But come up closer to Mike, Jake. I kind of read you like a book on the last one, so maybe 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 it's gonna be okay. I would say like um like uh Jared Herbert you mean just, Justin? You mean Jared Goff or Justin? I mean Herbert. Justin okay. Herbert. Justin Herbert, son. Justin Herbert. I call him sunshine. Okay. I never called him by his actual name before. Got it. Now I'm
0: thinking. Well, this is this is the issue. I I wish I had more of an intimate knowledge of where you felt quarterbacks laid in in the top 32. I feel like a lot of people consider him to be G- definitely G- top 15, G- probably <laughs> top <Scott> 10. Um, <laughs> Jared <laughs> Herbert. It's a sports podcast, by the way. Um, as far as whereas is sports business, yeah, sports business. So before where I was going, five, six, or seven. I'm, I think I'm gonna hone in on six. I feel like, but I, I do want to parse out because I'm, I'm kind of leaning seven. So I'm, I'm gonna try to give. I want to try to get something that's gonna be higher up in, in the in the seven, eight, nine range to see if I can maybe push this number up a little bit. Okay. Why don't we go
1: with do 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 spellings of quarterback names? Yeah, I had <laughs> yeah, no idea no idea um why don't we go
0: with if you could equate this to a TV slot in which a sport might be
1: aired does that make sense it does okay. I also have no idea how to pick that uh, I'd say like a um, probably like a Thursday evening okay like a Thursday night game okay okay
0: I think that pushed it up for me I think I'm going well and I'm thinking in the context of the NFL like there's a nice like prime time but in the context of other sports, so it's like the night before, the weekend, I'm still gonna go seven. Seven is my answer. Uh, I can't read it. Is, is that a seven? A seven. It's backwards. Oh my goodness. Seven. Yeah. That's oh my cool. goodness. Wow. That's out, oh, Jake.
1: I, <laughs> We're kind I'm of. i have
0: gotten addicted to this game. We have to do this every week. If we can do it again right now, if you want to, I don't. I don't care. <laughs> okay. Like, you know what? We have some time. Let's do let's do one more. I'm gonna I'll start again. I'm, I'll write down a number. Just don't make me pick a quarterback again.
1: <laughs> okay, you're you're asking for clues now though. I'm writing down a number. Uh okay, got it. I think I know what your number is. I'm gonna write down what I think your number is right now, and okay. and then we can go through the rigmarole of answering all these questions. But I have right. a feeling I know exactly what you picked already. Which is, okay, go ahead. Which is insane. Um. NFL coaches. NFL coaches.
0: Current, okay. Current NFL coaches. Let us go with trying to think. Mm. Could be him. The issue is some of the coaches. I don't. I don't know all the names of some of the new guys that were hired. Um, okay, I'm going to go with uh, Dennis Allen, the coach of the New Orleans Saints.
1: Okay. I'm gonna go. My next question will be: where, where does that put you in terms of the how you're thinking about that? It? That that leads me to believe that you were really struggling to figure out who somebody was or like the name of a guy. So we're definitely below five. I think you would have been able to rattle off somebody for five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, and so that puts me at like a two, three, four range. And got it. I'm, I'm kind of dialing in on the, the the three or four. Um, so, that's where I sit on that. Um, see, 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 Fringe sports. Maybe not fringe. Fringe is not the right word, but emerging sports.
0: Emerging sports. I got what you mean. Um, for emerging sports, let's go
1: with... Ultimate Frisbee. Okay. I should have clarified my question. I guess... I like, now, now I'm really confused because I have no idea. Wait, wait have no clarify, idea. Clair, clarify, clarify, clarify. I think I know you're... Were you talking it, about it, like... The chance of their success in the long term. I'm going to still go Ultimate Frisbee. Okay. All right. So that's good to know. Um, hmm. Frisbee.
0: But if anybody's listening that would like to work with us who works in Ultimate Frisbee,
1: <laughs> we're happy to... We're happy, you to know what the the uh, above where Jake thinks you are. Yeah, wh- well, you you said it. I didn't say it. Um, the the uh, the league that does ultimate frisbee actually does like a phenomenal job. Uh, the ADL, on, they do. Uh, yeah, on on the uh, the social side of things, also on just the general production side of things. But we're, we're off on a tangent now at this point. Um, I'd, I'll say, um, uh, uh, cities with. Professional sports teams in them. Cities with professional sports
0: teams in them. I'm going... Do you mean like the quality of the teams or like the, the quali- quality... of the
1: oh. cities. Okay, the quality like of the... Like a city. place you'd want to go see a game. Mm. Okay. Um, let's say... Jacksonville. Oh, man. See, the entire time I had you at a three... But you okay. saying Jacksonville trickles me up to a four maybe, but I'm going to say three because I put you on a three, and I have no idea what you ended up putting. I made so you, way you dirty on. dog, I put a three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. That was, I kinda... that was insane. I I read you like a book right away. We should just <laughs> We should play poker because I could uh, I could take you to the cleaners. Actually, Alejandro was a professional poker player. I don't know if I told you that, but you—I think I was there when he when he mentioned it, which yeah. kind of
0: tracks. That, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, okay. Um, that's a little too inside baseball. We're just like yeah. name dropping clients, like first name bases only. Yeah. Um, okay. What? Why don't you write down a number? Write down a number. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play the, the second part of the game where I try to guess your number. Was, just was that it's on insane instinct. or what? was that That's insane I don't mean to like discredit your accomplishment but for some reason I also I feel like through is kind of predictable maybe it was because so like I, we just it's a it's literally a 1 in 10 chance <laughs> it, so we had just gone like above like we were like above the five threshold and like below the five threshold kind of three felt like yeah but you're right very impressive sorry D- don't don't mean to degrade
1: well let's not let's not forget that that happened right let's not forget Let that me. that happened okay do you have a number I do have a number okay
0: Give this to me in terms of NFL uniforms. Color rush or normal? Any variation? He's <laughs> now googling. I'm googling.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gotta remember here. I just yeah, did a video on NFL uniforms, so I, I think I just have a better like. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's fair. I would say. Honestly, I'd I'd probably go with like New Orleans probably. Yeah. Just like their standard uniforms. Yeah, just
0: a standard uniform. That that to me is that's an above average uniform to me. Their colors are great. I think they're just the design's clean. I've never seen them do anything that's like totally out of pocket. Um so now I'm kind of thinking we're in like the seven, six, seven, eight category is kind of where I'm where I'm thinking here. Um how about we go with commissioners of leagues? <laughs> I could get in a lot of trouble here. <laughs> of the you know of the major the major professional leagues, plus you know extend down to the you know next three emerging leagues. If you need to go that far, mm-hmm. 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 Gary Bettman. And a- oh, okay, that's he's that is a pretty bottom tier commissioner. I think a lot of people consider him to be. And now I'm rethinking what you thought the New Orleans Saints uniforms were. (laughs) I have to remember, well, you're a Vikings fan. There is some beef between the Vikings and the Saints with whatever the uh, bounty gate was. So maybe you thought that was a bottom tier uniform, like a two, three, or four. And Gary Bettman definitely seems closer to like a two. But now I need to really figure out shoot if we're really down here in the twos okay why don't you why don't you give this to me in terms of um the the major championship games the major championship games like the the championships of each the championships of each major sports league oh okay
1: oh Hmm, just the finals or the playoffs in total? Hmm, let's go full playoffs.
0: <clears throat> sort of looking
1: for a... Man, this is interesting answer here. The full playoff... Oh, man. Gives
0: me a bottom-tier answer. I'm going to go with 2, 3, or 4. I really like the Saints uniforms, so... Seems like we, that was our first, that was a departure for us.
1: I am really struggling with, with responding to this. Can, so what, I think it's the best way to do this is like assume the biggest sports, but like of all sports, cause like I, I could go to like a random second or third tier sports and say, sport and say like those playoffs are the worst, but I'm not, but I'm not going to do that. Or I could go to the, the okay. I could go to like, I could go to a different one and say they're the best. Um... Uh, I'll say baseball, major league baseball, MLB playoffs. That one's pretty good though. So
0: now that's, I feel that's kind of counters my, but it's, it's, now I'm thinking if I felt like the Saints uniforms were already in the middle tier and then Gary Batman's like lower, I'm going to go with four is my final Mm -hmm. Mm guess.
1: So let me, let me unpack your, your thought process and then I'll explain, explain to you how I got to, to the number that I got at. So okay, Saints uniforms, not good. Now uh, okay, just just not that I 1st standing them but, but, but no 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 hard feelings with the Saints. i don't, like good for them for putting bounties on okay. guys, but um, I just, I'm just not a big they're fan there. of them for for whatever reason. Like they're just not. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't do anything for me. Gary Bettman, yeah, sure. the the worst, the wot. Um, and I, I really struggle with the playoffs. I like hockey a lot, so you got you got to read you got to read the guy a little bit maybe. Um, right. so, so I just love, I love the NHL playoffs and I was, all, I almost said NFL cause I was trying to remember like which playoff games that I, I watched. And once, once our, once my team's out of it, then I don't pay attention until the Super Bowl. So I kind of dropped it off for me, but maybe that's just cause we don't ever have any success in the playoffs. So I did it three. Okay. That's pretty close. I think we, uh,
0: that's the beauty of the game. I thought that you were much higher on the Saints uniforms than I pre- than you were, and we we found our way back down. Gary Batman catching some strays along the way, but you know what? Yeah. Probably nothing he hasn't heard before.
1: <laughs> I, I do I do love a good
0: boo when a commissioner comes out for a draft. Yeah. Nothing like that Rob Manfred boo when he got booed and then subsequently cheered when he was going to be leaving the stage. That that <laughs> has to be one of my favorite clips of all time. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll be back next week with more in sports and business and possibly even some wavelength. Thank you to Aaron Ryan McFarland for producing this episode. We'll see you guys next week.